Lord, thank you that you have given us 10,000 reasons to worship you. And more, Lord, so many things. You're so good and kind and forgiving and holy and righteous. You're the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. In you, we live, move, and have our being. You're near to each one of us. That's just a few examples of how you are so good and how you deserve all of our worship. As we study your word tonight, Lord, may we be reminded that this is just as much an act of worship as anything else. As we devote ourselves to hearing your voice. We pray that you would guide us and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for waiting till I was done praying to finish your text. <laughs> Please turn your cell phones off for me, sir. Denied. No cell phone off. All right, last week, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 6. Last week, we saw Samuel's first word from God, how he was established as a prophet in Israel, the presumptuous sins of the Israelites, as well as the death of Eli, and his two corrupt sons, all in the midst of a battle with the Philistines where the ark was captured. And God brought some really nasty things on the Philistines while they kept the ark. Uh, remember, we discussed boils in unmentionable places and whatnot. This is where we pick up today in chapter 6. Now, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So you, you got to, just real quick, how stubborn do you have to be that you are plagued with boils in your nether regions and you're like, yeah, we're going to hang on to it for a while, see what happens. Me personally, if I think there's any relation, say, between the box we stole from the Israelites and the boils... Right, that box is going back quick. Right, take it. Here it is. We're sorry. But they're like, well, hang on to it for a while. After seven months, they'd had enough. It's, it's, like, it's like Jonah in the belly of the whale. Or the fish. It's a great fish. It's not a whale. But one of my favorite parts of that whole account is it says, after three days, Jonah prayed. Now, I'm a pretty stubborn guy. I get swallowed by a fish and I'm not dead. I'm like, I get it. I'll go. Just let me out. Right? No, he sat there for three days hoping he would die before he finally said, fine. <laughs> so, you know, if you, if you ever think you're stubborn, you're not Jonah. If you ever think you're dumb, you're not as dumb as the Philistines who kept this, the Ark of God for seven months, even though all these plagues were coming upon them from it. Verse 2. As And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the Ark of God to Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering, and you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make the images of the tumors, the images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps... He will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Verse 6. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, take the calves home away from them. Then take the ark 
of the Lord, set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch it. If it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So the men did so. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, shut up their calves at home, set the ark of the Lord on the cart, the chest with the gold rats and the images of the tumors. And the cows headed straight for Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. So this off, this, the advice is pretty good. Um, one interesting thing to me, even though their trespass offering is wrong, because uh, we know that if you go to Leviticus chapter 14, in Leviticus chapter 19, there's an outline for how, uh, what a trespass offering was to look like. Um, so their trespass offering was wrong, but they knew to send back some kind of offering. I found that interesting. But then when they say, don't harden your hearts like Pharaoh did, and all these plagues came upon Egypt, they had to hear more. It, it was more than just Oh, the Israelites, you know, came out of Egypt because at this point in time, you're talking 400 years, three, 400 years have passed. So this, maybe they had a copy of the word of God. Maybe they, I don't know how, but somehow they knew this. And I like their warning. Stop, right? If, if you go look at that verse, why then do you harden your hearts, right? It's not a don't harden your hearts. It's a why are you? They kept the ark for seven months, despite a plague of rats and a plague of tumors. Um, that stubbornness. And the, and the priests and the diviners are like, you got to stop this foolishness. And so they give them these instructions on how to send the ark back, the new cart with the milk cars, cows separated from their calves, the offering and so forth. And of course, the cart goes straight to Beth Shemesh, a town in Israel, accompanied by the Philistine lords, so that they knew that God was at work among them, and it wasn't some chance occurrence, which we, of course, know doesn't happen. God, there is no such thing as happenstance. There's no such thing. A cow would not leave her calf on, yeah, with... Right, yeah, to go somewhere they've never been before. Absolutely. That was why they were lowing, is because they had been separated from them. But it was interesting. I was in the, I was in the kitchen here at the church this afternoon, hunting flies. Because I originally, I just went in there to get a cup of coffee. Um, but there were flies. And there's been a lot of flies around lately, and they're getting on my nerves. So I grabbed the fly swatter, and I was chasing them about. Not really. I was standing there like a ninja. Like if I'm real still, the flies won't see me. I don't know. I'm, I'm insane. Um, anyways, I got three out of the four. I, the, the last one got to him. <laughs> but there was, I was sitting there this whole, uh, while I'm doing this, I'm like, flies, they're disgusting. I mean, they eat trash, they eat stuff. And they're just, they're, then they land on your food, and then they spit on your food or your whatever to try to suck it back up. I mean, flies are gross. And the first thought that came into my head was, dead serious, you must have had a reason for making them. I don't know what it is. John probably knows. John probably knows, you know, what flies do for the, for the ecosystem and whatnot. But I just, same with mosquitoes. What do mosquitoes do? They feed frogs or whatever? I don't know. But God doesn't do anything without a reason. He's always got a purpose. I think our struggle is if we don't like the reason and we think God has failed or we think God has done something that is uh, against us in some way, when the reality is, is he does everything for a reason. His reasons are always good. And trusting him and having faith that he's always going to do what's right. Uh, it's not always easy, but it's 
it's important. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were weeping, weeping, reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. And these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, for Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, to the five lords. Both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh. Um, so very, very cool. If you were to go back to the book of Joshua and find the place where the Levites were assigned cities, because remember the Levites did not gain an inheritance of land in uh, Israel when they moved in. But they were granted cities. Now, it was the Levite cities that became the cities of refuge, but they were also granted other cities so that when they weren't serving, they had a place to go. And they were given a certain amount of grazing land around their cities for their own livestock. But they had no inheritance. Now, so if you were to go back and find the list of the, if I remember correctly, it was 30 cities that were given to the Levites, you would find that Beth Shemesh was on the list. Now, what's interesting about that is they were not supposed to be farming. The Levites were supposed to be taken care of by the gifts and offerings made to the tabernacle that were then to be distributed among the families um, for their service. Right? They could have a little bit of livestock and maybe a garden, but they weren't supposed to be farming to the extent where they would be reaping the wheat harvest. Right? That's, not, that's not what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to be serving in the tabernacle. Just a little something to point out. We already know the whole priesthood was corrupt at this point. We already know the high priest and his sons are dead, right? So what was everybody else supposed to do? The point is, when they took the cows and they took the cart and they made this offering on this rock that was in the middle of Joshua's field, which became known as the Rock of Abel, they were Levites. They were allowed to do that, just in case you were wondering. Uh, of course, they rejoice in the return of the ark, the Philistine Lord's Witnesses, at which time they would have definitely realized that it was the God of Israel who had struck them with all of those plagues and whatnot. It does beg the question, I've asked this several times over the last few weeks, why wouldn't they repent? Why wouldn't they go, okay, so our, our fish god fell over, his head fell off, hands knocked off before the ark plagued with rats, plagued with boils. And now at this point, they know that, and if you look, the diviners and their uh, uh, priests were using God's name. They were calling him Jehovah, so they knew who he was. They had some knowledge of the, of the Hebrew scriptures, at least what had been written to this point. Now they have physical evidence that God worked miraculously among them to bring plagues on them for taking his ark until they gave it back. Why wouldn't they go, you know what, let's get rid of fish boy and start worshiping the one true God. That, seemed, that makes sense to me. That, I would think. But when you look at when Jesus was on earth, performing miracles, preaching the word, healing all, all the things that he did, and there were people who just hardened their hearts, and refused to listen. Verse 19. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh, that escalated quickly, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord, 
he struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. All right. Back in Exodus chapter 25, and then again in Numbers 4 and several other places, God commanded very, very clearly no one was supposed to even look at the ark, let alone look inside of it. The children of Kohath, who were of the tribe of Levi, they were given the task of carrying the ark with two poles that went between the rings on the four corners of the ark. But before they ever picked it up, the high priest and his sons would go into the Holy of Holies and cover it. Because the sons of Kohath, even though they were the ones to carry it, they weren't allowed to touch it, and they weren't allowed to even look at it. The only person who was actually allowed to really do anything with the ark was the high priest once per year on the Day of Atonement. The rest of the time, they just left it alone. Some of these guys apparently forgot that. And for whatever reason, they looked inside. Now, did they see the Ten Commandments, the jar of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded after 400 years? I imagine the rod was a little old and crusty. The manna, I, I don't know how good their jarring techniques back then were, but um, the Ten Commandments would have been there. They were stone. But what's interesting about that to me is I think if God tells you not to look in his ark, you probably shouldn't do it. You guys have all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> you saw what happened to the people. Now when he said, it says here that God struck them, we could take that to mean that their faces melted. I mean, we could. We don't know that they didn't. Maybe Steven Spielberg and George Lucas got that right in the original Indiana Jones adventure from 1982, if I remember correctly. That was a bit of a side trip. Two things I want to bring up, and then we'll move on. Thing number one, 50,070 people. Now, here's the reality. There probably were not 50,000 people in Beth Shemesh. Some people might look at that and go, oh, see, contradiction, contradiction. Um, actually, it's just a, it seems to be a translation error of a Hebrew word. Let me explain. A lot of Hebrew scholars will tell you that it could not have been 50,000, that it may have been 5,000. It may have been 50. It may have only been 70, or it may have been some other combination. And this is why. The, the, the word that is translated as 50,000 in Hebrew actually means family or association. So why English Bibles translated as 50,000 is beyond me. It shouldn't be translated that way. Right? So there's no problem with the Hebrew. There's a problem with the English translation of this word. Um, unfortunately, the Hebrew word um, is a bit ambiguous. And so its exact meaning, like family or association, right? That's, that's kind of a guess. It's, we don't know its exact meaning. What it could be is that there was an association or a family of 50 people or 70 people or a combination of the two, meaning about 120 people that died for looking in the ark. Because for 50,000 people to open the lid and everybody to take a peek, that would have taken a while. I'm sure the first group would have started dying before they got to the end of the line. Um, so it's probably a much smaller number this is not a contradiction in our Bibles. This is not a situation where we should go, oh, well, then we're, gonna, we're just going to disregard. The, obviously, the Bible is, is, is filled with errors. It's not an error in Scripture. It's an error in translating a word from Hebrew to English, which, in all fairness, Hebrew is a much more complicated language than English, and English is a stupid language. It is. I kind of want to write a book about it. Yeah, I'm going to write a book in Hebrew about why English is a stupid language. I may need some help with that. Anywho, the second thing I want to mention, and this is more by way of application. 
They looked in the ark and they weren't supposed to because God had prescribed a very specific way for the people to approach him. Right? You come to the priest, you make the sacrifice. The high priest goes in once a year, only with a ton of sacrifices like we've been studying in Hebrews. And they tried to come some other way. And this, the, the face melting, right? That's conjecture. The Bible doesn't say that. But the face melting was the result. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That is now the prescribed way of coming to the Father. We can't come on our own. We can't come on our own merit. We can't come through mysticism. We can't come through yoga. We can't come through self-discipline. I got a yoga story that's completely unrelated that I might get to. We can't come um, based on a deal we've struck with God. You know, I did this, Lord, so now you have to let me come and you have to do what I, what I, right? None of that doesn't work. How do we come? Through Jesus Christ. Now, through Jesus Christ, as we studied in Hebrews 4.16, we can come with boldness. But only through Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people that are going to get there one day. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? He's going to look at them and say, I never knew you. Because they tried to come based on their own efforts. There's going to be a lot of people that think they can come some other way, but they truly cannot. Ready to get back to Samuel? Chapter, all right. So technically we're in chapter 6, verse 20, but it belongs in chapter 7. This is one of several places, as I've mentioned <laughs> along our way, um, that the, the folks who divided the chapters just did a horrible job right here. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Notice what they didn't mention. They didn't say, Hey, a bunch of our people died for looking in the ark. Will you guys come and get it? Oh, the ark of the Lord came. You guys want it? Ha, ha, ha. Was, that, was it uh, uh, it's, it's, it's Tom Sawyer in the, or Huckleberry Finn? In the eventual, yeah, that he, he's like, oh, no, painting the fence is fun. You don't want to do that, right? Until he gets everyone else. Wasn't painting, it was whitewashing. But still, oh, you guys want the ark? Think of how cool you'll be, right? Yeah, we had a, we had a few hundred folks, their faces melted. But we're not going to talk about that. You guys want the ark, right? Um, so the men of Kyrgyz Jerem came and took the ark of the Lord. They brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So, of course, they didn't, they didn't want the ark. They wanted it to go. Um, and the folks of Kirjith Jerem took it. And we find out in chapter 7, verse 2, that the ark remained in Kirjith Jerem a long time. 20 years, as a matter of fact. And all the house lamented after, all the house of Israel, sorry, lamented after the Lord. Now, were they lamenting the death of the people? Were they lamenting the fact that the ark was in the wrong place? Were they lamenting the fact, because remember, we have to take all this in context. Were they lamenting the fact that the high priest and his two sons were dead, so now they had nobody to offer sacrifices for them? Um, there was a ton of things that they could have been lamenting over. Whatever the case, that brings us to chapter 7, verse 3. Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, and put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said, There, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Well, of course they would. 
Last time they had a battle against the Philistines, which at this point in time, there had been some time had passed, but they lost over 30,000 people. I'm sure it freaked them out a little bit. But look at what they do. So different than the last battle. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. This is one of my favorite verses tonight. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Car. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. You know, just in case you were wondering, hey, but what about the Amorites? So Samuel really begins his ministry as judge over Israel. And he calls Israel to repentance. Now, again, and this is just more interpretive, there is a little bit of disagreement. Because the ark remained in Kirjith-Jerim for 20 years. Now, does that mean it's 20 years between the ark going to Kirjith-Jerim and the scene we see here where the Israelites are out, the Philistines? Or was that just a note by Samuel when he was writing it? Because he was writing this later on. And he's like, oh yeah, man, goodness, the ark is still there. It's been 20-some years. I should write that down. Right? We don't know. Some scholars, some commentators and whatnot say that Samuel gave this message for 20 years before Israel finally repented and they were able to overcome the Philistines. Others say, no, that's just a note that the ark was there for a while and Samuel's ministry was taking place and, and so that the, the overcoming of the Philistines <coughs> the time period between what we read there in chapter 6 and the overcoming of the Philistines was much shorter than 20 years. We don't know. It doesn't matter. I spent a lot of time trying to explain that, and it doesn't matter. Because in the end, what do the people do? They repent. Samuel says, listen, put away the false gods and repent. And they went, yeah, you're right. This, this isn't working for us. Clearly, we're doing something wrong. So they, they repent with sacrifices. They repent with fasting. They put away their false gods, Baal and Ashtoreth. These were, of course, fertility gods. We've talked about them quite a few times. Um, they were the gods of sex and materialism at the time. Um, of course, we still th see things like that today. Baal was satanic worship. Um, Baal comes from Baalzebub, which literally means Lord of the Flies, uh, had nothing to do with school children on an island, uh, but was satanic uh, in nature. Uh, unfortunately, we still see people worshiping Satan today, which just boggles my mind. Because if you believe in Satan, then you have to believe in the God that created him. Because the only reason we know Satan exists is because God told us so in the Bible. So that means you have to recognize on some level that there is God and you've chosen to worship Satan instead. That's a special kind of stupid. Um, we, of course, need to get rid of anything false in our lives. We've talked about idols a lot as we've gone through, um, so I'm not going to um, hound on it too much right now, but what I think is really neat about this passage is the way they dealt with it when they finally repented. Because they dealt with it. Right? 
they got rid of all the idols. They got rid of all the symbols of false worship. They got rid of all of it. Then they sacrificed for the forgiveness of their sins, which Samuel could do. Remember, Samuel was a Levite. Then they fasted in mourning for their own sin. And then when the Philistines gathered together and it was time to go to war, what did they do? Pray for us. What happened last time? Did they cry out to God? Did they ask the priest to pray? No, they got beat. They took the ark out. They got beat really bad. And then they blamed God for it. I mean, just very, very different. And I think it's important for us to deal harshly with sin. Remember Matthew 18, 8 and 9, where we're told if your hand or foot offends you, cut it off. It's better to enter life lame than to enter the fires of hell whole. Then they say the same thing with gouging out your eye. And we've talked about this before. Um, if you gouge out your eye, if you gouge out your right eye, what, what's left? Did you like that? Your left eye. Can you sin with your left eye if your right eye is gone? Of course you can. What if you cut off your right hand? What do you still have? Your left hand, right? And the stubbornness and foolishness of the human heart, if you only had one hand and one foot, you'd be hopping on that left foot to sin with your left hand because that's the way we are. So is God telling us to, to physically mutilate ourselves in order to deal with sin? No. What he's telling us is to deal with it harshly. Don't play around with it. Don't mess with it. Don't get close to it. Don't toy with it. Deal with it harshly. That's what they did. That's the example we see here. So they're gathered at Mizpah. The Philistines come out against them. They ask Samuel to cry out. Such a huge difference, like I said, than the last time they went to battle. And here, I love it, I love it, I love it. God thunders against the Philistines allowing Israel to drive them out and recover all the land that was taken from them. All the days of Samuel's life, the Philistines never caused them problems again. Now, the Philistines caused Israel problems later on, but not during Samuel's life. They left Israel alone. The difference here between victory and defeat is the difference between going out in their own strength and going out in God's strength and obedience to his will. Now, I'm going to bring up something because I brought it up a couple times, and then we're going to polish off this chapter. What we just saw happen should have happened under Samson. God raised up Samson to deliver Israel from the Philistines, and he failed. As a result... God had to raise up Samuel. So keep that in mind. If you don't do what God is calling you to do, that's okay. He'll raise up somebody else. God's will will get done. I would so much rather he do it through me than to blow it so he has to do it through someone else. So some cool things here. It's a time of spiritual renewal. They took their fears. They turned it into prayer and became victorious. Um, God thunders with a loud thunder. Here's what this means in Hebrew. He violently roared with his voice. Now, you guys all know I'm a big uh, fantasy nerd. And every time I read the Chronicles of Narnia, especially The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? they did their best in the movie, but there's only so much you can do. But after Aslan's resurrection, Lucy and um, Susan, Susan and Lucy get on his back and he turns around and he says, you might want to cover your ears. And he roars so loudly that it shakes Narnia. That's what I hear. Now, I, I, I don't know that God sounds like a lion when he roars. He probably sounds like Something bigger? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it is, but it's just so cool. Now, if I were on the wrong side of that, I think it would freak me out, which is what happened to the Philistines. 
Uh, the Ebenezer Stone, it's a, it means stone of help. And interestingly enough, if you remember, because it was just a couple chapters back, Ebenezer is where the Israelites were defeated, lost the ark, and lost 30,000 soldiers. Very same place is where God now defeats the Philistines before them. And I do like this. Uh, it reminds me of Philippians 1.6, uh, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it under the day of Christ Jesus. Actually, being confident of this very thing, that he who begun a good work in you will complete it until Christ Jesus. God was still working among Israel. Right? He didn't bring them to this place just to leave them. God, throughout the history of the world, the fact that Israel exists today is proof of that. Now, if God can do that for an entire nation, an entire nation that has repeatedly turned their backs on him, you really think he's going to stop working in you? You think he's just going to let you go? He's going to take you to a certain place and say, ah, you're on your own now, I'm done. I ain't going to have it. Verse 15. Oh, I'm on the wrong page. Verse 15. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel and he built an altar to the Lord. Um, to this day, there are sites in Ramah, competing sites. Uh, they've built a couple churches there that they claim are the burial place of Samuel. I seriously doubt either one is actually it. Um, <laughs> but it's likely that he's buried somewhere around there. That is, if the current site of Rama is the same site of Rama from this time. Chapter 8. You know, spiritual renewal, revival, repentance, defeat over their enemies... Every, everything's coming up roses for the Israelites all of a sudden because they seek God. God steps in. He starts doing this incredible work. Chapter 8. Kind of like judges. And then the Israelites sinned against the Lord. Now, at least there's a little bit of reasoning here, which is very unfortunate. came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in the ways they turned aside after dishonest gain took bribes and perverted justice. And all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old. It's a nice way to greet people. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. What was the problem? His sons had become corrupted. Why? For all the good things that Samuel did. The godly man he is, right? And his ministry's not over. He's old now, but he's going to be around for the rest of this book and, and into the next one. Why would he allow his sons to do this? I, I, don't, I don't understand that. He saw what happened to Eli when Eli didn't take care of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And now his sons, Joel and Abijah, are going the wrong way. The people see that. Why doesn't Samuel do something about it? So they come and they ask for a king. It's still sad because God wanted to be their king. We're going to see more of that in a moment. Verse 6. This thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice, second time he says it, however you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel's upset. He goes to God, he goes, God, what do I do? And God says, do it. Heed their voice. He's actually going to say it a third time before we're done. He goes, do what they tell you. Go warn them. Go, go tell them what's going to happen if you set up a king. But listen to what they're saying. And he says, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Isn't that such a sad indictment? Do you remember in Acts chapter 9, in the first nine verses, when, when Jesus literally knocks Paul to the ground 
in the time he's called Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he took it personally. Paul was killing Christians, imprisoning Christians, torturing Christians. And Jesus said, I'm the one you're persecuting. So here they rejected Samuel. But God said, not really. You're my representative. They're rejecting me. And it's sad when anyone rejects God. Uh, I'm part of an online ministry called Gospel for Asia, and I imagine I've mentioned it before. Um, and I, you know, I get emails from people all over the world who are looking into the claims of Christ and whatnot. I got one the other day where the subject line was, I have not received Jesus Christ. They were presented with the gospel, and they made a clear choice that they didn't want anything to do with it. I wrote to them anyway. Haven't heard back, not expecting that I will, but it's sad. We talked a little bit about this last week, because if we insist upon our will, we insist upon being disobedient to God and refuse to heed his voice, well, he'll let us. He'll let us follow our own will. He'll let us reject him. He'll let us stew in the consequences of it. Talked about that from Romans 1, 2 Thessalonians 2. But that's not his best. And he wants his best for us, which is to be in Christ, to keep our mind focused on him, Ephesians 1, Colossians 3. We are the ones that prevent this in our own lives. When we insist on our own will, instead of following God's. When we trust him, when we abide in him, when we focus on him, when we rest in him, and all by the power of his Holy Spirit, he will always show up. He will always be faithful. He will always do what's best for us. We may not understand. We may be impatient. We may even make the mistake of trying to do things on our own. Anybody remember Abraham and Hagar? But in the end, when we trust in the Lord with all our hearts, when we don't rely on our own understanding, when we acknowledge him in every aspect of our lives, he will show us which way to go. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Verse 10. So this is Samuel's warning. This is what's going to happen if you get a king. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. He said, this will be the behavior of your king. He will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his own horsemen. Some of them will run before his chariots. He'll appoint captains over his thousands, over his fifties, will get set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some will make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants, and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So this is what it boils down to. Samuel was a libertarian. He goes, if you set up a king, right, if you set up some central form of government, it's going to go wrong. Right? They're going to collect taxes. They're going to take the best of the land. They're going to take your servants. They're going to take your sons. They're going to take your daughters. They're going to take your donkeys. They're going to take whatever they want, and you're not going to have a choice in the matter. And when you complain about it, I'm going to say, too bad. I like that. You see, we know that God appoints human leadership, which can be tough. Because we see throughout history, human government always begins to abuse its power. Human government always begins to become corrupt. And we see it again and again and again throughout history. It's said, you don't want the, the Democrats in power because they're a bunch of thieves. The Republicans are thieves, too. They just do it with more finesse. No offense. I was trying to make sure I offended everybody at the same time with that one. 
right? But it, it doesn't matter who's in power. Gonna, there's going to be corruption. It's, it's the way it goes. It's unfortunate. It's sad. I wish it wasn't true. I would love it if we had a government that was filled with people who love Jesus Christ and who, who govern according to biblical principles, but that's, that's not the reality we live in. Now, because we know that God appoints human leadership, we know that from Romans 13, and we're to obey human leadership, unless that leadership tells us to disobey God, then we must obey God rather than man. Uh, Acts 5.29 tells us that. I personally think it's interesting that God does appoint human leadership, and since we know the principle of sowing and reaping, I believe that a nation will often get the leader or leaders that it deserves. For example, why should we expect godly leadership in our nation when our nation as a whole has rejected it? Now, we haven't, but there's 340 million people in the United States, and the number of Christians is sadly low. They put the number of actual, born-again, Bible-believing Christians at this nation that's under 10%. So when you have, out of 340 million people, 306 of them have all rejected God in some way, shape, or form, why would we expect to get godly leadership? That's not who we're going to elect. I say we as a construct of the whole. Not we. They. They, 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 they we, right? Verse 19. Nevertheless, Listen to this. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations that go out before us and fight, or sorry, that we may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Third time, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to a city. He said, go home, fine. Go home. So I think it's amazing the bondage that people will live in because they will not surrender their lives to the lordship of Jesus. Remember James 4, 7 tells us to submit to God and resist the devil so he'll flee from us. They wanted to be like the nations around them, which is just so, so sad. I have heard on more than one occasion, pastors say something to the effect, well, but we got to have this kind of music, and we got to dress this way, and we we got we to gotta take it real easy on what we preach because, you know, we, we want people to come in, and we got to, you know, and we got to, I actually heard a pastor say once, well, if we're going to win the world, we're going to have to look like the world. I stopped listening to that pastor. In John 17, Jesus prayed, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We are supposed to be different. We are supposed to look different, act different, talk different, think different. We're supposed to have different values. We're supposed to vote different. I was listening to a message the other day, and um, I was reminded, and it's important to be reminded, there are a lot of people in our country that are deceived. There's a lot of people in our country that hold values, or what they value are completely in opposition to what the Bible teaches. But these are still people that God loves. It's hard to see that sometimes. But there's still people that God loves, still people that Jesus died for, still people that he would love to save but we're not going to win them by being like them. That's why we're told in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are to be set apart. We are to be different. Now, one last quick thing and we'll close. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, God gave them rules for when they appointed a king. Now, that's interesting to me, because he had commanded them not to do that. And he knew they were going to disobey. 
He knew they were going to want a king. He knew that they were going to reject the theocracy, God ruling over them in favor of a monarchy where man ruled over them. So he gave them instructions. Number one, God picks the king. Number two, don't multiply horses or return to Egypt to multiply horses. Interesting rule. But still, number three, don't multiply wives, right? One is enough. Number four, don't multiply wealth. Number five, and it's my favorite of all, you will, when you're, when you're a king, you will take a copy of the law and you will write it out for yourself so that you can read it and remember how to keep it. These rules were never followed. Never. Now, Saul didn't become particularly rich. He didn't multiply horses, but we have no record of him writing out a copy of the law and he had multiple wives. David had multiple wives. David became fairly wealthy. Um, we don't know that he multiplied horses, right? Of course, Solomon, Solomon was the best. He did it all, and he did it better than anyone. He would bring back thousands of tons of gold a year. He had a thousand women. Don't multiply wives. He, that wasn't, that was, right, two times two is four. And he was like, you know, 80 times 47, let's do this. I don't know what was wrong with that man. But he, he, he was wealthy. He had way too many women. He sent people to Egypt to get horses and bring them to Israel. I don't get it. He violated every single one. Um, and e even the one where God picks the kings. God chose Saul. God chose David. After that, it came by succession. Sometimes it was violent. There were times where God would give instruction to raise up a new king, but it didn't always work out because the monarchy was corrupt. God wants to be the king of our lives. Let's not be like the Israelites and try to put something else there. Next week, we're going to see Saul chosen as king. And he actually starts off decently, right? Saul, he, he, gets, he hits the ground. He's doing pretty good at first. It just doesn't last. As we do that, we hit a very specific um, breaking point within the scripture is the fact that when Saul is appointed king, which we'll see next chapter, the time of the judges officially ends. Even though Samuel is still alive, uh, but the time of the judges ends. And the time of the kings begins. Which, as most of us know, ends in tragedy. Let's pray. Father, may our end not be tragic. Help us, Father, to hear you, to obey you, to follow you, listen and walk in your ways according to the Holy Spirit. God, keep us away from evil. Keep us away from corruption. Keep us away from anything that would draw us away from you. Pray, Father, that you would watch over us the rest of this week. Bless us and keep us in your name. In Jesus' name.